Okay, people. Page 60, page 60, which um, I'm not going to work through, I just drew attention to, it's called the Psalms in the New Testament, uh, that gives you a list of the passages that um, are apparently quoted or closely alluded to uh, in the New Testament, and then I've divided them into various topics. Uh, and so you'll see what the topics, are, which correspond quite a bit to what I described at the beginning of the quarter as the lenses. Uh, the Psalms get used for help in understanding Jesus, help in understanding the Gospel, help in understanding Israel, help in interpreting experience, help in understanding the future, patterns for mission and ministry, patterns for spirituality, patterns for living. Um, and Psalm 2, which... Um, uh, somebody referred to as maybe a passage that uh, is a prophecy of Jesus is interestingly applied both to Jesus and to Christians. Um, and that, I think, illustrates the nature of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the New Testament sees it. There's not a one-to-one -one -one relationship between this is a prophecy and that's a fulfilment. It's here is something which we um, can get some, il some illumination on from the Old Testament. And the New Testament gets illumination on who Jesus is and who Christians are from Psalm 2. Psalm 69 is an interesting one that gets applied in several different ways. Interesting not least because it's one of those psalms that you wish wasn't in the Psalter because it's so nasty. And it shows how the New Testament is not embarrassed by the nasty psalms. Um, note the collections of passages in Matthew and Romans and Hebrews. There's usually little connection between what the, what the New Testament makes of a psalm and the psalm's own meaning. The New Testament writers are inspired by the Spirit to see new significance in the psalm as it answers questions that they need answers to. As I've said already, if you're looking for the psalm's own meaning, then the best way in is those passages in Ephesians that talk about what's the nature of praise and prayer in the Spirit. Corporate praise, thanksgiving prayer, the psalms as a worship resource for the church's worship, praise and thanksgiving and prayer, that way into the uh, Psalms out of the New Testament seems to me to be the one that corresponds most closely to the Psalms and nature. That's a kind of footnote to the first half though, because I'm moving on now to page 61 where it says how to pray for other people. Um, we're looking again <coughs> at Psalms of protest, but looking at them from another angle. Um, as I've said already, um, one of the things about being an Episcopalian and being a seminarian in an Episcopal seminary is you have to use the Psalms every day. And I used to think, what on earth are we supposed to be doing with these Psalms when I'm not feeling the way that Psalm 22 or Psalm 88 or something is? Um, and uh, another question that, um, that puzzled me was, uh, how, uh, why aren't there any intercession, Psalms of intercession, Psalms for other people in the Psalms? And then I realised that the answer to both my questions uh, lay in putting them together. The nature of the, pro the protest psalms are not merely the way you pray for yourself, uh, but the way you pray for other people. So, as I think I probably mentioned, Kathleen and I are in the habit of saying a psalm each day in our um, dinner time prayers uh, on behalf of the people of Darfur, uh, for, with whom uh, Kathleen's um, daughter and son-in-law are very much involved. So we pray these prayer prayers of protest for the refugees from Darfur in Chad. 
Um, and psalms like the ones we're looking at come alive when you do that. Somebody said in there posting, what are you supposed to do with I'm, I'm not in the position, I'm not attacked by enemies. No, me neither. Well, except when I read the evaluation sheets. Um, <laughs> and then, even then I'm being attacked by friends, aren't I? Yeah. Um, we're not attacked by enemies. Well, lucky us. Because a lot of Christians and a lot of other people in the world are being attacked by people. And so the Psalms are there as a resource for us to make it possible for us to pray for people who are in much tougher situations than we are. They are, as I put it there, a way of entering into the experience of people in need uh, and of interceding. And so there's something that you can use in pastoral ministry with people, in the counselling context with people. And a sort of example uh, is the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 2. Um, as they do each year, uh, Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah and Peninnah's children uh, come to the sanctuary for the festival um, and they have a great time except that Hannah doesn't um, because the festival somehow brings home to her her uh, childlessness and the fact that Peninnah, whom uh, Elkanah likely took as a second wife precisely because Hannah was infertile, uh, Peninnah can have children easily. Uh, and so um, the pain of that situation and the pain of, not God, of God not answering her prayers comes home to Hannah all the more at the sanctuary. <coughs> and she goes and presents herself before Yahweh. Eli the priest is sitting at the do- on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant... We will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no rage shall touch his head. As she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. You can tell they had a good time at these festivals. (laughs) So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli tries to remember the um, lectures that he would heard from David Augsburger, um, and eventually works out uh, how you should deal with um, distressed women um, in church. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, the God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favour in your sight. And as I read earlier, she goes to her quarters. She ate and drank with her husband. Her countenance was sad no longer. She went home. They made love. She got pregnant. She conceived, uh, bore a son, named him Samuel. For she said, I've asked him of the Lord. Now that's a picture of the a way in which somebody uses a psalm in the context of, um, uh, of uh, the worship at the sanctuary. Uh, it's something Eli could have, dealt, could have um, uh, learnt from, but went through, looks as if he's beginning to learn a little bit from. Um, people come to pray there, and the, the priests, the pastors in the temple, their job is to be able to help people to pray and to um, listen to the Lord for answers to their prayer, to be um, sensitive to the person, which Eli, of course, was not, at least at stage one, um, to be sensitive to the person and be able to help, be able to help them pray in that prayer of protest kind of way. And then to be sensitive to God and listen for what God is saying to this person and pass God's word on to that person. And the kind of process you see going on in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 is the one that I take it is then encapsulated in that Psalm 12 that, uh, that I read earlier where somebody prays and then there's a word from the Lord and then a response from the, uh, from the person who's been praying. 
Uh, you'll find an example, somebody working out the pastoral implications of that uh, in this book by D.S. Capps, Biblical Approaches to Pastoral Counseling, in which he's just, it's a shortish book, and it's just got a chapter on Proverbs and a chapter on the parables and a chapter on the Psalms, uh, in which he talks about the use of the Psalms in this kind of way. The Psalms then give people the means of expressing the pain they need to express, but to do so to God. Uh, we help them to do that, and then we listen to God for them. Um, and I found in the past that sometimes it's been my job, having listened to somebody, maybe to say, why don't you say Psalm 42 or Psalm 88 to God? Or, or, or maybe, maybe I could say Psalm 42 or Psalm 88 or whatever for you. Or maybe uh, I would um, express, uh, make up something like a psalm of lament to God on their behalf. But a distinctive, uh, a, a noteworthy feature of the psalms themselves is that when you're praying that way, you don't pray for him or her. Uh, you, you, the psalms uh, are expressions of the position of the person who's in need, and you pray as I which, as I say, is what Kathleen and I do when we read those uh, psalms on behalf of the Dufuri. Um, maybe you can get somebody, them, the person themselves, to uh, make up a prayer of lament, but I've found, I think, it's, it's more plausible for maybe they can say an actual psalm of lament, or maybe you can make up a prayer in which you speak on their behalf to God. Uh, either way, then, um, the, as I put it here, the Psalms give people the means of expressing the pain they need to express. But they're not just letting it all hang out. This isn't just, thera this isn't just therapy. Uh, this is speaking to God. And we help them uh, to do that in expressing it to God and then listen to God for them. And that's true about individuals, but it can also be true about communities. Because there are communities that need to grieve or to pray or to get angry. One of my weirdest experiences in California, and as you can imagine that's saying something, uh, is um, when I was asked to go to speak, uh, to preach at a church um, that was a kind of, um, how can you call it, a, a sort of community, a family, a sort of um, collection of people who come to live together and be church. Um, but but uh, it, sorry? Are you going to give me a name for it? No. Um, I, don't, I mean, it had a, a way of describing the kind of church it was. Um, uh, but I was asked to go and speak there, um, and I discovered when I got there, I knew, I knew it wasn't going very well, I discovered when I got there uh, that it was going to be the last time this church ever met. I mean, imagine preaching, but imagine preach, discovering that's what you preach, the context in which you're preaching, really. <laughs> but what was even weirder was that there, was absolute, there wasn't a single reference to that fact in the service that we had. Um, the people, you could kind of understand it, they were in total denial. Now, of course, we all know denial is a very important survival mechanism, but that was ridiculous. Because when communities go through death, um, they need to be able to express that in the same way as when, when individuals go through uh, bereavement, they need to express it. Uh, it's the situation that's presupposed uh, by um, the movies like The Full Monty and Billy Elliot, about which there'll be a reference in a bit of tape that I'm going to play you in a minute. A situation in Britain where um, mining communities, where, where mines were being closed down, and, and that meant the death of communities because the only reason why the community existed, why the village, the little town existed, was because there was a mine there. Uh, and you can see equivalent contexts of the community praying uh, in some passages in the, uh, in the Old Testament. 
that is one, um, the 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 passage about Hannah shows you an individual praying in a psalm kind of way. Um, 2 Kings 19 um, is the story uh, of, the, um, of Hezekiah praying in a psalm kind of way. Uh, he's under pressure from the Assyrians. Um, the, Assyrian has got discovered, the Assyrian king has decided he's got to go and fight somebody else, but says, don't worry, I'm coming back. Don't let your God on whom you rely deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them utterly. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my predecessors destroyed? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Sepharvaim, the king of Henor, the king of Ivar? And he sends a letter to Hezekiah saying that. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. Isn't that a great description of prayer? I've got this letter, Lord. Let's just read this letter, Lord, will you? And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, Yahweh, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, Yahweh, the kings of Assyria, have laid waste the nations and their lands. Yep, he wasn't telling lies, that guy. So now, Yahweh our God, save us, I pray you, from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, are God alone. And Hezekiah prays in a psalm of protest kind of way, acknowledging who Yahweh is, telling Yahweh what the situation is, telling Yahweh it's really important that Yahweh should do something about it, and then shutting up. Um, and Isaiah gets sent with a word from God to respond to Hezekiah's prayer, uh, a, a word that is indeed a prophecy in the way we were talking about just now, and that does get fulfilled. And there's, uh, that's 2 Kings 19. There's a um, uh, different and sp splendidly bizarre story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 about King Jehoshaphat in a similar kind of situation uh, of um, uh, under pressure from the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. So the Judahites set out for battle with the Levites, with the Levitical choirs, with the army, um, singing, singing praise to God. And Jehoshaphat... Um, urging God to um, look at the situation and do something about it um, with a word from a prophet that says go out in confidence um, the battle is not for you to fight take your position, stand still see the victory of Yahweh on your behalf Judah and Jerusalem don't fear or be dismayed tomorrow go out against them and Yahweh will be with you uh, and um, it turns out that way uh, context for the community a prayer um, individuals, um, communities too, but also individuals, um, in situations like that, uh, sometimes need to get angry. And I want to play you a bit of a, ta of a, a tape of a lecture um, that Walter Brueggemann gave in our seminary in England, uh, in which he talks about these psalms of protest, and uh, in particular refers to anger. So I've been asking the question, how does Israel talk right and I want to remind you of three practices of speech uh, that I think belong under the rubric of covenant. First, I believe that in our society of self-deception and ideological pretenses about well-being, 
that the songs of lament and complaint are a mode of speech that has to be recovered in the life of the church. Now, I have no idea how to say that to a bunch of Anglicans, because I know you sing them all the time. But what I've noticed at King's College Chapel is that we sing them in such settings that we don't notice what's being said. The, the way they have been placed liturgically, they are robbed of their speech. And I believe that serious covenanting has to do with the weaker party forcing the stronger party to change. That's what's going on in South Africa and everywhere where anything important is underway. It has to do with parent-child relationships, it has to do with marital relationships, it has to do with all relationships. But after a while, the strong party will reduce the weak party to muteness. The amazing thing about the Lament Psalms is that right in the heart of the Bible, it is said to us that the weak party must find speech against the strong party. And what the Lament Psalms basically are, I think, they are acts of rhetorical terrorism. They mean to terrorize God, the neighbor, and anybody else who gets in the way. Well, I do notice that even in the Anglican orders, at least in King's College, they got some lines down the side of things you may omit. <laughs> you may omit the center of Psalm 109. Because no Christian would think that. My mother-in-law is a psychiatrist. I said that once and I said, big deal, everyone's is. I was with her one day, she was she she was thinking art therapy. And she was with two hundred Presbyterian women. And each of the sheet of paper, she said, I want you to draw your anger. Well, you know, Presbyterians are not really artsy folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, sitting next to my wife's aunt, who is a grand old southern lady. And she grasped her paper firmly and she said to me, I don't get anger. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're living in the frame of the covenant, you don't dare get angry because the relationship won't hold. So you either have to deny it or you have to act it out in sports or at uh, roundabouts. <laughs> or you turn it in until it affects your body. What an astonishing entrustment to the church that we have been given these sanctions for speech of assault that insist that what the laments, Gerstenberg has shown, that what laments basically operate on is the conviction 
things do not need to stay the way they are, and they will not, if they are insistent enough at the throne of God. Now, it's very difficult for sort of settled, affluent people to imagine that things are not going to stay the way they are. And I believe that one of the things we need to be reflecting on is what price has it cost the church to drop this speech out of our serious repertoire. Third. Um, what I'm going to play now is um, <coughs> the uh, my colleague.